Christianity does not sit easy inside a pagan culture. It is confrontational and subversive by definition. It is like yeast that works its way through the entire batch of dough. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Christianity is subversive, as we see in this story. When the gospel begins to be preached and embraced within an unbelieving culture, it literally turns the world upside down. Christianity does not slide into a pagan culture and take its place beside other perspectives. It makes massive, far-reaching claims that, if accepted, will literally tear your life and community apart. That's what we see happening here in Acts 19, and that's what we see happening wherever the gospel is faithfully preached still today. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 19. This chapter begins with what is undoubtedly one of the most controversial stories in the entire New Testament. It is connected to the story of Apollos, whom we encountered in Acts 18. He, too, was a disciple of John the Baptist, and he, too, needed some further instruction before he was able to come to a full and complete understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pick up the story in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that this story is one of the most controversial stories in the New Testament, and that is largely because of the way it has been used by certain Pentecostal groups. I. Howard Marshall puts it this way. He says, This story has often been used as the basis for doctrines about the reception of gifts of the Spirit subsequent to conversion. But it has no real connection with these. Rather, Paul was dealing with an unusual situation which required special treatment. In essence, some Pentecostals have argued that this story narrates the experience of a group of Christians who did not receive the Holy Spirit at the time of their conversion. They only received it later and as a result of certain specific activities. Some will go on from there to argue that this story provides further evidence that all true converts will manifest the gift of tongues at the moment they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, the problem with that argument is the assumption that these people were actual Christians in the first place. Now, true, Luke does refer to them as disciples, But if reading the Gospels proves anything to us, it is that not all disciples go on to become true believers. John 6, verse 66, for example, says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So, 
Many people were interested in his teaching. They were, in that sense, disciples. The word just means learners. But at some point, they failed to press forward into true and saving belief. Now, in addition, most Bible readers will recognize that the word disciple does not always even refer to followers of Jesus Christ. There are disciples of the Pharisees. There are disciples of John the Baptist alongside disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. So the fact that Luke says that Paul met some disciples in Ephesus does not mean that these people were truly Christians. In fact, the whole point of the story appears to be that they were not Christians. Paul meets some people who, like Apollos in the previous chapter, appear to have an Old Testament messianic hope. They know that Messiah is coming. They know about repentance. They know the teaching of John the Baptist. But Paul begins to sense that they have not gone all the way into saving faith. They don't know, again, like Apollos, how the story of Jesus actually ends. Look at what he asked them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Listen to how they answer. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. David Peterson asks the obvious question, how could genuine Christians make such a response? Let me be so bold as to say that if you don't know that there is a Holy Spirit, then you are not a Christian in any meaningful sense of the word. So I think the Pentecostal argument falls obviously short. This is not a story about Christians who didn't receive the Holy Spirit. This is a story about Old Testament believers being brought to a full understanding of the gospel, embracing it, being baptized, and then, just as we would expect, receiving the Holy Spirit when they believed. This is how the majority of scholars outside the Pentecostal world understand the story. John Stott, for example, says here, he, Paul, took it for granted that baptized believers received the Spirit, as Peter also taught, Acts 2, 38-39. Both his questions imply that to have believed and been baptized and not to have received the Spirit constitutes an extraordinary anomaly, closed quote. So I don't think that this passage is arguing for a second blessing. I think this passage is narrating how some Old Testament believers were carefully and gently brought up to speed, and then who upon conversion and baptism were included retroactively, we might say, in the experience of Pentecost. Now, as for whether speaking in tongues is being presented here as the normal experience of people who have received the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure how you would argue that from the text. As I mentioned, this story is paired with the story of Apollos in the previous chapter. In both cases, disciples of John the Baptist are brought up to speed as to the full content of the gospel of Jesus Christ, at which point they believe and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. But in only one of those cases is there any mention of anyone speaking in tongues. Furthermore, as you survey the book of Acts as a whole, you notice that there really is no consistent pattern. In Acts chapter 2, people do speak in tongues when they get saved and receive the Holy Spirit, as again they do in Acts 10 and then finally here in Acts 19. But in Acts 4, people get saved and don't speak in tongues, nor do they in Acts 5 or Acts 6 or Acts 8, 9, 13, 14, 17, or 18, despite that in each of those chapters we're told about the conversion of large numbers of people, none of whom are said to have spoken in tongues. I. Howard Marshall summarizes usefully here. He says, It is clear from the other stories of conversion in Acts that such manifestations took place spasmatically 
and were not the general rule. In the present case, some unusual gift was perhaps needed to convince this group of semi-Christians that they were now fully members of Christ's church, closed quote. I find it very difficult to disagree with that assessment. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because that was a fairly complex conversation. So I'd like to slow down a little and uh, just make sure I understand where you landed there. Yeah, fair enough. So, okay, let me make sure I've got this right. So you're saying the reason this story in Acts 19 is so odd is because it was an odd time in the history of the movement. We've got people who have embraced the teaching of John the Baptist, that something big was coming, but they hadn't actually heard what that something big was. So they were like half in, half out. And the Apostle Paul here grabs them by the hand, so to speak, and pulls them all the way through, at which point they receive a retroactive share of the gift of Pentecost. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's actually a very good summary. <laughs> Listen, it's it's clear that these people at the start of the story are not Christians in any meaningful sense of the word. They are pre-Christians at best, meaning they've been well prepared by John the Baptist to embrace the gospel when they hear it, but they obviously haven't heard it. At the start of this story, they didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit, Hmm. which is like the climactic gift of the gospel. So they didn't know about Jesus. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit, i.e. these people were not Christians. So Paul fills in the gaps and brings what John the Baptist started to full and glorious fruition. And that's when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Luke seems to be underlining the fact that when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's a two-for-one kind of thing, which is why it is so problematic when some folks try to use this story to argue for some kind of two-stage Christian experience. Some folks will say that based on this story and and probably based on some other things, that there may be people who are disciples, but who have not yet received the Holy Spirit. They are half Christians, you might say. But that actually isn't who these people are. Hmm. Yeah, I liked the word you used better. You said these people were pre-Christians as opposed to half Christians. That makes sense because John prepared people for conversion. So I get the category of pre-Christian But the idea of half-Christian just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. And and so I think the main takeaway here is that when a person is well and truly saved, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which may or may not be accompanied by the gift of tongues. Yeah, as I said in the program audio, Luke records the full conversion of an awful lot of people, and sometimes tongues is mentioned and sometimes not. There's no indication in Acts that tongues is some kind of universal sign gift. As we see in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul actually pushes back pretty hard against that idea. He says that love is the universal indicator of conversion, not tongues. Hmm. Okay, that makes a whole lot of sense. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here again, we observe Paul's normal pattern. He preached in the synagogue until he got kicked out. Then he found some new space to meet in with all those who had believed in the gospel. 
Again, this would have been incredibly disruptive. Synagogues would have been split. Families, no doubt, were divided and whole regions set ablaze by this new preaching. Notice also that once again, Paul parked himself in a regional center. Ephesus was the administrative capital of the Roman province of Asia and was one of the principal cities of the empire. Paul establishes a hub church there and from that church saturates the entire region with the sound of the gospel. Paul continued in Ephesus for nearly two and a half years. We pick up the story in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Luke provides here a vivid illustration of the sort of power evangelism that was being exercised by the Apostle Paul. These signs and miracles were not themselves the point. Luke says in verse 20 that all of this was towards the end, that the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. The miracles and the power encounter seemed to be designed to overcome the stronghold of magic and occult practices in the city of Ephesus. The people realized that the name of Jesus contained all the power and authority that they needed, and so they abandoned their magic arts and their occult talismans. As is always the case, where there is legitimate power from God, there will be people trying to imitate it and people trying to appropriate it. Luke tells us about that by sharing with us the amusing story of the seven sons of Sceva. They try and use the names of Jesus and Paul as a sort of magic spell, but of course it doesn't work that way and they get themselves thoroughly beat up and abused by this demonic power. The demon turns on them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? D.A. Carson says memorably here, Christians engaging the enemy will be known not only in the courts of heaven, but also in the courts of hell. That's a good reminder for us all. Verse 21 says, Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Luke tells us here that Paul received some sort of guidance from the Holy Spirit, indicating that the church in Ephesus was now well established, and that it was time for him to hit the road. His intention was to travel through Macedonia and Achaia, 
obviously so as to strengthen churches there, as uh, he had previously done after his first missionary journey. When we compare with 2 Corinthians 9 here, it would seem that he was also intent on gathering up the offering for the poor in Jerusalem. Luke also tells us that he sent two of his helpers ahead of him, Timothy and Erastus. Now, Timothy we're fairly familiar with, but Erastus is new to us. It was a fairly common name, and he's only mentioned one more time in the New Testament, and again, without any narrative, so there really isn't much we can say about him. Obviously, he was one of the several young men who are mentioned as having been mentored by the Apostle Paul. Verse 23, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further... It shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I think the main reason Luke shares this story is just to show us the sort of impact that the gospel was having in pagan Roman society. The gates of hell were being stormed and the devil was taking notice. The gospel was literally changing the local landscape. It was affecting the local economy, we're told here. As people converted, they were turning away from magic and the occult, and they were turning away from pagan worship. And of course, 
that got noticed. The temple of Artemis or Diana, again, those are two names for the same goddess, was a major source of income for the city of Ephesus. It was a huge temple. It was one of the seven wonders, actually, of the ancient world. It could hold 25,000 worshipers at a time. People would go on pilgrimage and visit the temple and the sites around. And of course, those visits would result in massive influxes of currency into the local economy. But as the gospel began to penetrate Asia Minor, it affected that flow of tourists. That in and of itself is an incredible testimony to the spread and to the impact of the gospel. As accused in Acts 17.6, these men were literally turning the world upside down. Christianity does not sit easy inside a pagan culture. It is confrontational and subversive by definition. It is like yeast that works its way through the entire batch of dough. So it was in the days of Paul. So it was in the city of Ephesus. Lord, make it so again in our day. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I was really interested in that story at the end of Acts 19. I love the idea of Christianity disrupting the local economy. Christianity should disrupt the local economy. It should disrupt pretty much everything in culture. But the truth is that often it doesn't, or at least maybe here in Canada, often it doesn't. Christianity, at least from my vantage point, seems pretty tame and largely accommodated to the culture. So why is that and what do we do to change it? Yeah, that's a great question. Now, obviously, our situation is slightly different than the one being narrated in Acts 19. In that story, Christianity was growing inside a culture that was thoroughly and entirely pagan. Christianity was a new and different voice. And so as it grew, it came into conflict with pagan beliefs and assumptions. Here in Canada, our culture is a dying post-Christian culture. So our beliefs, and I, and I mean our in the sense of us as Christians, our beliefs feel not new, but old to our friends and neighbors. We are not saying new and explosive things. When they hear us talk, they're hearing us saying old and outdated things, at least in their opinion. So that's different. But then as well, I think another difference is the fact that the Christians in the first century started on the margins of the culture. They began as outsiders. But then as they grew and as there were more and more of them, they moved into the center until they basically took over the Roman world in the fourth century. Well, to state the obvious, we are moving in the opposite direction. We were at the center for centuries, and now we're being pushed slowly but surely to the margins. And that feels different. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's exactly how I think most of us are feeling. We're like, hey, 30 years ago, we were saying the Lord's Prayer at every morning before school, and now we're doing gay pride parades. What in the world is going on? Yeah, I mean, things are changing really fast, and our views are no longer even close to being majority perspectives now in the culture. And so Christians, understandably, are wrestling with what to do about that. Some think that playing nice and you know keeping our head down is the way to go, but others are thinking that maybe it's time to fight back. But actually, if we read the New Testament as a whole, I think we would say that the call is for us to build and maintain a community of contrast. We are to stand tall, 
to hold our ground, to build our communities, to raise our families, to cherish our beliefs and values, and to shine our light in a dark and dying world. And then when people draw near, we are to invite them in. So we're not to engage in warfare with the culture, but neither are we to sign up for the parade. We are cheerful dissenters. We are peaceful but non-compliant. We are salt and light. So can we still turn the world upside down, or do we need to settle for a quiet, contrary existence? Well, I think that there are seasons in Christian history. There were times when Christian growth was explosive and therefore disruptive. And then there were other seasons when it was slow and steady and more or less unseen. It really does depend. But I will say this. History is not linear. It is filled with interruptions and changes in direction and trajectory. And I wouldn't be surprised if things looked very different in this country a decade from now. The emperor has no clothes, and more and more people are starting to figure that out. So there may be a season of explosive regrowth for Christianity in our near future. We'll have to wait and see. Mm, Fair enough. Let's all be praying and working towards that. Yeah. Amen. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 